Welcome to the RSP Cast Theory and Film. I'm Matt Waldman. Always joining me here, Adam Harstead. It's always a pleasure to have him. And I figured we just keep it kind of light today, considering that the opener is tonight, and we're about to find out over the next, you know, 17 weeks how this takes shape, and we'll definitely be talking about it week by week. But I think we've spent so many months talking about what could happen and what we're expecting, you know, what might, might not, all those different things. So let's just talk about our fandom a little bit. I thought that might be kind of a fun thing to start with. What do you still love about the NFL, considering that we're doing, you know, that you, you cover the sport, you analyze the sport in, in so many different ways, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a full-time job. So what, you know, what do you still love about it after all of that? Um, it probably comes as a surprise to a lot of people unless they've been following me because I always say this. Um, yeah, I'm generally known as like a numbers guy and I always talk about how I try to view things as objectively as possible. Um, but my love of the NFL is um, 100% rooted in the fact that I am a storyteller at heart. And the NFL, of all the major North American sports, maybe of all the sports in the world, is the storytelling sport. I mean, you look at um, basketball and hockey, the play is continuous. There's no, there's no breaks between plays to kind of stop and process what happened and think what happened next. Um, it's more frenetic. It's more, you know, jazz-like. Um, baseball, you have the breaks between plays, but everything's so atomized. Like, each at-bat is kind of its own self-contained universe. Um, but the NFL has a beginning and a middle and an end. You know, every play is setting up for the next play or the last play. There's this common narrative through line in the structure of the game itself. Um, a lot of the successful actions in the NFL are storytelling, play action, the draw play. Um, it's all about selling a story to the other team and taking advantage of that. Um, and then even beyond that, the NFL recognized very early on that storytelling was what set it apart. And um, I think perhaps the most influential people in the success of the NFL over the last 50 years are um, the Facendas and Steve Sabol and NFL Films. And, um, you know, the Autumn Wind is a Raider and, and all of that. Um, that was kind of the key differentiator in the 70s when it passed baseball and became America's pastime. And I love it. I, I, um, I love it in the NFL and I, I talk a lot about the history um, and, and um, just the narrative through line going back even a hundred years. Um, it's why I play fantasy football. Um, I'm mostly hoping to get a good story out of it. I don't really care about the money or the stakes or anything like that. Um, but I can tell you all sorts of stories about you know the history i have a guy in one of my fantasy leagues who lost in the semifinals in fantasy like eight times in nine years never made the championship game but he kept making the semifinals and losing in the semifinal round and i noticed that stuff and i love that stuff and um you know like obviously there's not a real story he's not there's nothing deficient in him we can't control how our fantasy players do the way that actual nfl coaches do um, but, you know, it feels like his team just keeps letting him down. He's the Marty Schottenheimer of fantasy football. He, he, 
he's great in the regular season, but he can't get over the hump. And, and so for me, that's why I love football. Um, the other stuff is cool, the strategic element. Um, there's a lot intellectually going on in any given play. And then also like emotionally and viscerally, there's a lot of hitting. Um, I don't know. I, I imagine people have probably noticed that <laughs> there's some violence that appeals to the baser nature. Um, you did a, a series a number of years back called um, Team the Team to Defend the Planet. And it yeah. was basically like if aliens were invading Earth and they said if we could beat them in a football game, they'd leave us alone. You know, who would you be picking out of all time on your team? Um, and I, for my offensive coordinator, I picked Bill Walsh because to me, he's like the epitome of just that intellectual approach to football where he's he's standing at a, a whiteboard and he's got these X's and O's floating in his head and he better than anyone could move them to the right position. And then my defensive coordinator was Buddy Ryan because he more than anyone represented like that, that, um, you know, if, if, um, if Bill Walsh is like the professor, then Buddy Ryan is like the, this ruthless despot who like is punching his own players on the sidelines. And um, there's a, a page from one of his old playbooks um, where he's talking about like, you know, every quarterback who's ever played um, is like, a, is a Nancy and um, <laughs> none of them deserve any dollar that they've ever made. And we are going to like hit them and hurt them and make them bleed and make them cry all game long and that was buddy ryan and to me they represent kind of like the two extremes of football yeah and what i love about football too is and it was so eloquently stated about the the storytelling because as someone who grew up skipping school as a latchkey kid in the 70s rent getting library books on like red grange and sammy baugh and and running backs of the 50s and just kind of being a young hist budding historian I probably abandoned that compared to what what you've done, but uh, but I I would just come home and read all day, just fake sick, and I would do that at least a couple times, you know, during the winters in Cleveland, Ohio, it was kind of easy enough to do. So, um, you know, I loved the history of the game, and of course, you can't, you know, so spot on about NFL films and John Facenda, and if I could sing in tune, I would have continued singing under my breath the theme, you know of the autumn wind but uh but you know it's such a you know it, those are awesome points about the game but i find that you know the way you brought up bill walsh and buddy ryan what else i love about football is that while they are polar opposites there's a common denominator with both of them because bill walsh had tough teams and they played physical football and they could run the football even with the short passing game they always had a smash mouth fullback they always could run. They always played physical or handled physical play at a high level. And you could just tell that Walsh was one of those people that was very much in theory, uh, a lot about football theory and, and scheme, but you could also see with his teams that there was a there was an inner toughness to his teams. That They were actually one of the best defensive dynasties yeah. in NFL history. And people don't, don't think about those San Francisco 49er teams. Um, but they like if you look at like their defensive end of year ranks often were better than their offensive end of year ranks yeah i mean charles haley and ronnie lott and i mean so many players hacksaw reynolds at the beginning of his career i mean at the end of his career at the beginning of walsh's head coaching career <clears throat> there's um, so many players that could be mentioned on those on those defensive units but i think that that's the thing is the blending of 
so many characteristics to make a good football team um, to, or to make a good football player. You can, there's so many silos to football. And I think that's what I love about it the most is that you have the, you know, you can have the narrative kind of storytelling silo of what goes on. You can have more of a data silo. You can have more of a theory of like, uh, you know, uh, kind of a, a silo that's that kind of blends between a, a couple of elements. You have the X's and O's, and then you have player movement and player techniques and skills, which is where I would say that's where most of my silo of work is, is, is in that range of like scouting individual players and what they, what they do on the field and how they, how they process information into physical movement. And from, you know, it's amazing to be able to, to dive deep into any of those elements and then look outside that element and go, I have so much more to learn, you know, in this air, in another area. Um, and, and I think that that's what makes it fun because the ball, you know, as, as somebody I know who probably has covered more silos than anybody that I, that I've ever met who was in the NFL, he just summed it up very well. Just saying the ball bounce, it will always bounce funny. And, and really it's there's a it, it there's enough unpredictability and variance with everything going on that um you know it's it's just such a tease to try and predict you know what's going to happen knowing that it's going to be difficult to do so um so i mean for now i think that's one of the things that i love them love the most about the league um you know, and like you said, the violence, I think we'll get to that because I love the violence and I might as well just do it. But it also, I'm a little conflicted about it. Like I'm, I'm, I think I'm, you know, to me, I, we grew up in the era of like the hitting era and, and the weaponization of, of equipment because yeah, I mean, back in the day when you had leather helmets or you had cheap helmets, um, you know, you didn't use your weapons. You didn't use your equipment as weapons in the seventies that began in earnest and, you know, growing up in that era and then in the eighties and seeing like glorification videos of, you know, Rodney Harris and Ronnie Lott, <coughs> excuse me, you know, just nailing people, you know, that was fun until you realize the consequences of what of what happened then you look back and you think yeah i don't like seeing the stories about you know tony dorsett and darkened rooms you know because he's light sensitive and that's probably one of the easiest symptoms that he's dealing with um so you know i'm glad that safety of the game is the way it is but there is but the, there is a part of the hitting that is appealing and it's just like you 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 hope that they can find a way to do it in a manner that that the that the violence or the collisions are safer um and that the and at the same time that the league can find a way to help players do the best they can to take care of themselves and if if the time in the nfl is shorter for players so that they can preserve their health i'm all for that even if i'm going to miss seeing them have eight, 10, 12 year careers, and they only have three, four, five year careers. But it's, 
that's the thing that probably has me most conflicted you know right now so there is a guy um for the kansas city chiefs um back when they're in the afl guy named jim tyre he was a left tackle um multiple time i think like five time all pro um pretty universally regarded as the best left tackle not in the hall of fame the best offensive tackle one of the best players not in the hall of fame everybody knows like he was a hall of famer he played at a hall of fame level no question about it reason he's not in the hall of fame is shortly after he retired um he worked as a traveling salesman for a few years um apparently struggled um and one day he drove home killed his wife and then killed himself and he you know the first year he was eligible for the hall of fame he was a finalist he made it to the committee the committee discussed him never even came up for consideration after that you know i'm sure the committee said are we really going to put tire in the hall of fame no absolutely not and that was that um i'm reminded of this when peter king made a big stink a few years well i guess about a decade back about darren sharper and he says well the hall's bylaw says we're not allowed to consider off the field stuff and it's like well if jim tire is not in the hall of fame you're obviously considering off the field stuff you can pretend otherwise but obviously you are um and it's I mean, that's always a very hard case for me. Um, You know, some friends and I were talking about if we had our own personal Hall of Fame, would Tyra be in? And 15, 20 years ago, I probably would have said no. And now as we learn more and more about CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and all of the, the, um, the... effects of just these cumulative hits and especially at the offensive line where you're not getting quote-unquote jacked up but it's just um moderate hits play after play after play after play after play and they have this huge cumulative effect and we know this now and part of me is now wondering you know is the reason why tire the the post-football player basically snapped and killed his wife and himself orphaned his children is it partly because of his football career i mean did did he do such damage to himself playing football and that's the reason why you know he's not in the hall of fame for playing football and it's i don't think it's questioned with the easy answer because yeah i don't want to be here condoning like he killed his wife and that's not like that's a horrible thing he orphaned his children i mean i can't even imagine what those children went through for the rest of their life and i i don't want to be glorifying that but also and, and, and maybe, who knows, maybe if he had just been a salesman his whole life, the same thing would have happened. You, you can't really, you never know what causes these things. But as we learn more and more, um, I think cases like Tyre or um, Joven Belcher in Kansas City, um, Aaron Hernandez, they become more and more troubling to me um, because we know that, that, I mean, it's some of this is independent of football and some of this is not independent of football some of this is caused contributed by not caused but but i think football factors that bleed into it yeah right a contributing factor in a lot of these cases and even beyond the brain injury i think there's this whole like soldier mentality and i don't think it's a healthy environment i think you and sigmund and have said that like football is not nfl is not a place for well-adjusted people no um partly because if you're well-adjusted you are not maniacal enough to make it there in the first place and partly because that's not an environment that you know like teaches you to be well adjusted it's like the most unnatural environment out there so i agree with you that that the costs and consequences of football 
are something I struggle with. And I think that if football ever goes under, um, something like that would probably be the cause. I, I, if it comes out that the NFL like knew about CTE for decades and was hiding it, like the tobacco industry with, with the links to lung cancer, um, something like that could be the NFL's undoing. Um, and if that happens, I mean, I can't even say with a straight face that they didn't deserve it. Yeah. Um, so that's hard to reconcile with my love of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And it's fascinating when you talk about, um, you know, the mentality, because Bloom and I talked about that because we got that from our friend Ryan Riddle, the, the former NFL defensive end and linebacker who played at Cal. And I remember spending a week, spending a week um, with Riddle out in L.A. about 10 years ago. And uh, I was out on assignment for a, for a university gig and and he let me he let me kind of couch surf along over it with Eric Stoner, for, you know, former RSP writer, so that I could do the gig because, you know, UGA state jobs are kind of cheap when it comes to expenses. So I said, I'll do this. I'll do this job if you know. I'll do this uh, feature if you want on this guy who works at the mayor's office. But uh, and they're like, no, we'd love you to do it, but you gotta, you know, we can't pay for anything but the flight. We, you know, and I'm like. That's what you have in the budget. So, uh, fortunately, fantasy football and football came through uh, on that end. But Ryan and I, you know, we went to a UCLA um, BYU game and uh, spent the afternoon talking, you know, spent a number of days talking and hanging out. But, like, one of the things that I remember asking, I said, what was, like, one of the best plays where you hit somebody and you felt that, you felt that energy just transfer through somebody else like just one of your hardest hits um because i've always heard people say that when they hit somebody like that that they don't really feel anything um but the person who gets hit obviously does <coughs> and sometimes they don't either it's the impact with the ground um but it, he said and it was interesting because he as he told this story of I think it was against Stanford that he was running down the field on kickoff coverage duty and he saw the ball carrier work up the left flat and he had two blockers in front of him and he just instantly calculated that the, the distance between the two blockers that he needed to throw a cross body block and if he did that he would move the two blockers into the runner so he literally dives from about five yards away and does basically a WWE cross body block through the two guys and they and the one collides into the runner and then the other one collides into the runner the second time so you have like a ricochet whiplash type of effect and two guys had to be helped off the field and as he explained it you could see the ambivalence because as he's telling it you could see he's remembering that play like it was literally five seconds ago and there's this huge smile on his face and and it's and at the same time as then he describes it he goes you know what happened to the guy he said i'm glad the guy was okay afterwards but yeah i mean like i had no idea where he went like i found out later what happened but like you know as he described it and it's fascinating because he never got hurt you know, playing at Cal as a defensive end or at, or at, with about five different NFL teams. And, you know, he's like six, four, two, he was like six, four, two sixty, 
and just he's one of the quietest most gentle honest human beings that I have ever met just like he has two girls he is like um, and I, I don't know how to say it in, in any other way he's an absolute sweetheart of a human being I mean almost like very intelligent film buff but kind of like in his personality there's like this sweet childlike sweetness to him and he's he was the sack he was the um, single season sack record holder at Cal when Marshawn Lynch and Aaron Rodgers were there um, and when he tells the story it's like the switch flips you know and he and it's so when you it, it just kind of gives you an idea that people are complicated and I think the NFL shows us a lot of stories and it's not meant to be that way but they show us a lot of stories that people are complicated and that we kind of we don't do a very good job as fans of reconciling that because we're not looking for it that way but I think that if you pay attention to it you come to the conclusion that you know you're going to have ambivalence about a lot of people and, and or about a lot of things that that you encounter in the world and the NFL is no different even though people want to point to the NFL and say it's a bunch of thugs it's a bunch of crazy people it's a bunch of you know violence and it's all these things when it's really it's just life you know it's just life yeah. magnified on the screen you know and I think and and a lot of that's just base rates I mean you yeah. look at how many there's what 53 people on an NFL roster times 32 teams that's 1700 people plus then you now have like 16 man practice squads and you know there's 2,500 players in the NFL at any given time or, or in, you know, on and off teams in, in the orbit. Out of any sample of 2,500 people, you're going to have just a wide variety. You're going to have um, Broncos had a defensive tackle named Luther Ellis who adopted like 16 kids because he said, you know, like I've been put in this amazingly fortunate situation and I have this money and I have a chance to make these kids' life, lives better. And like that's one of the the most selfless and over the top things a person could do. That's not getting reported in the media, and you know, yeah. like other than like casual mention in passing. Whereas you know, Cedric Benson at twenty two gets drunk in a bar in Texas and punches a dude, and like that's breathless nonstop coverage. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, I think if you followed twenty five hundred anything you know my wife's an occupational therapist you follow 2500 occupational therapists i'm sure there's going to be one who got into a bar brawl at 22. yep uh so i don't know that and and that's complicated too because you look at socioeconomic backgrounds of the average nfl player and you look at um there's this story that nfl players are especially violent and it's it's hard for me because i i think it's plausible given the demands of the NFL and, and the NFL demands you to see opposing players not as human beings because if you view them as human beings you can't do the things you need to do to them um, and it does create that soldier mindset and it's plausible to me that that does make people more violent but on the other hand I mean there's so much amazing philanthropy coming out of the NFL and it and sometimes it's in the, within the same people absolutely I mean, you know you think of Steve McNair and all the philanthropy he did and the things he did in the community and then his life came to a violent end and there's a little bit of a drunk driving thing and there's guys who who i we know who are considered the face of the league in the <laughs> league now or not in the league anymore and still the face of them who probably have done a fantastic job 
of being around the right people who could basically cover up things that they did or minimize things that they did during their their grown experience that a lot of guys wouldn't have gotten away with and there's there's a little bit of that that also is a bit of a conflict too you know you i mean know. larry fitzgerald um has had domestic violence right. uh, he hit his girlfriend or wife at the time and it wasn't even covered up like that was in the media and reported and it was i mean i don't want to say like right time because that sounds flip but like this was before the nfl decided it really cared this was yeah. pre-ray rice and so the media reported and then they just kind of, you know, like dropped it and ignored it and never mentioned it ever again. Um, and Larry Fitzgerald has done a ton of great things for, you know, the community and, and he's been an ambassador in a lot of ways. Um, but he has that in his past yeah. too. And, and who knows? Yeah. And, it, and fame is part of that issue because it's not just football. I mean, I, I had someone tell me recently who's a, a police, a former police officer say back in where he was a police officer there was a iconic hall of fame and um, major league baseball player who beat his wife and left her naked outside her house outside the house and the police were basically instructed to um keep it quiet you know all that all those years you know and the and i've heard that there were a lot of things that have memorialized this player you know since that time you know so it's a you know, I think part of it too that makes the NFL so kind of a conflict, conflicting thing that you love and hate is the fame element, and I think that that comes back in, and it's also one of the most face, fascinating things to analyze from my end because it's like I think fame is I think fame will one day be a psychological disorder and or be classified as such and should probably be, but it's hard to be able to. You know until you study until it's studied it's going to be hard to like you know kind of wrap the whole pathology up in a nice you know in a semi-neat bow and say this is what contributes to it these are the possible things that can happen and you know here are symptoms that people are going to deal with and it, because it's also so seductive and and there's some types of fame that you just can't control you know i mean even if you're trying there's people who are trying to be famous and will never be famous and then there are people who don't want to be famous who suddenly get thrust into a spotlight that's so intense that they were no way prepared for it you know so it's a and the nfl is such a a huge part of you know is a huge example of all of that so i don't know and that's the that's the weird thing because i kind of dislike it but it fascinates me endlessly. Yeah. Well, and it, one thing about fame is I think we learn things about people that we wouldn't. I mean, a lot of these things are probably true of my neighbors and, and you know, the clerk at the grocery store and just people I interact with. Like, all people are complicated. But, like, I never learn it about those people. But right. for someone like Jim Brown, I know that he was both a civil rights legend and also a serial woman beater. Like, right. just serial habitual and both of those things are true and it's you know uh, Vince Lombardi um, I think is one of the most admirable people in the history of the league and he grew up um, an Italian immigrant in the 1910s 1920s when that was like the immigrant to hate du jour like he, he experienced a ton of discrimination as an as an Italian Catholic immigrant 
Um, and when he became a coach, he resolved that like he was not going to put up with any of that. And he refused. His Packers would not stay in any hotel that would not accommodate the black players, which when they were traveling to play games in the South was a big deal. And that it was very hard for them to find accommodations for the team. But he refused. He said, you know, um, you know, when we cut, we don't bleed red, we bleed Packer green. And if you can't take all my players, you, you, they just weren't, weren't permitted to um, frequent any establishment, restaurants, anything that didn't take all the players. Um, Lombardi's brother was gay and he knew um, Jerry Smith, tight end at Washington, was gay and came out to Lombardi. Um, and Lombardi told the team, like, if this, if anybody has an issue with this, you're gone, period, full stop. Like, this is a non-issue. Um, and he had other players who he never, like, put somebody on the team just because they were gay, but he would know and he, he would um, try to make sure that they had a safe space on the team wow. um, and that they could be judged on their own merit. And he's just... I think a tremendously inspiring guy in a lot of ways. Um, and also, you know, I tend to be very pro labor, but there's talk that um, Billy Houghton, legendary Packers wide receiver, one of the first presidents of the NFL Players Association, there's talk that when Lombardi got to Green Bay, he um, sent Houghton packing because, because of his ties with the NFL Player Association. And he felt that he should have absolute control and he resented any sort of player empowerment too. Um, so again, it's complicated. And mm -hmm. I think on net, absolutely, he's a very admirable figure, but even somebody like Lombardi, there's there's stuff where, and it's a product of the time too, I don't know. Yeah, it, we're all learning lessons, you know? We're all yeah. learning lessons throughout our life. And there's things that you can look back on 40 years ago and go, ooh, I'm glad I didn't have social media then. I'm glad that, you know, that I wasn't in a public eye, you know, at, at that point. And you think of Lombardi, I mean, I'm, the story I remember the most about Lombardi is is the Giants veterans, you know, coming into his room and basically telling him that he had to stop being so obnoxious and Josh McDaniel like um, uh, about trying to show everybody that he knew everything and being hard on them and that he needed to take it easy. They all knew he knew football and he needed to relax a little bit um, because it wasn't going to last long here. He wasn't going to last long here if he didn't chill out. You know, and, and to Lombardi's credit, he did change, you know, to an extent. He tailored his style enough to, to be able to stick around there and learned a couple of things from that. You know, even if he was known as a hard ass in Green Bay, but it was tough love, you know. But in, in New York was probably a little bit of insecurity. And the, and the veterans were like, yeah, man, you can't be insecure like that. You're gotta, you've got to relax a little bit. And, and we know what you can do. Just do your job and stop acting like you have to be like king of the universe while you're doing it. Right. You know, so, so, you know, I guess, you know, on, on that note, I'm just thinking, you know, is there anything else like that comes to mind for you when you think about week one or, um, you know, heading in that we haven't talked about, but you're, you know, this has been something that you've, that's kind of been on your mind this, this preseason, um, you know, whether it's a, a team or a unit or, or a particular player or rule or, or, or anything that's going to can be on or off the field regarding the league. Um, yeah, I don't know. I do want to say, um, yeah, I, I find myself in like odd niches in the fantasy football industry, um, partly by design, partly by, you know, like there's a need and somebody needs to do it and I don't really mind winding winding up in odd places and so at football guys I, I project 
kick and punt returners. Um, and speaking about being conflicted, um, like 20 years ago, kick and punt returns were such a huge part of the game. Um, we had players who, um, Marte Jenkins once had 2,000 kick return yards in a season, which is like unfathomable. You know, uh, Michael Lewis um, had like 2,600 return yards yeah. one year. Absolutely. Yeah. He's the only guy to ever lead the league in um, kickoff return yards and punt return yards in the same season. One of only three or four players to ever do it both during his career. Um, and And it was... It was a big deal. Teams were returning a ton of kicks, and I loved it. It's um, it's such a fun and exciting play, and there's a lot going on that just people don't really notice. You know, a lot of people view them as, like, filler plays where, like, this is where you run to the bathroom and, like, let's just get the offenses back on the field. But they're so fascinating. And uh, one of my favorite things about them is the path to get players on the field. Um, there's a lot of players who, who make teams because of special teams. Broncos had a team captain for um, like 10 or 12 years named Keith Burns, uh, who basically had a 12-year career as a veteran minimum guy just on a series of one-year contracts just because he was veteran leadership and he was a steady, reliable presence. Um, Cedric Pierman is Cedric, another Sure, example. or, or um, like how many undrafted rookies have two years in the league only because they can return some kicks or because they're they're uh, more enthusiastic about punt coverage responsibilities than the guy who was you know like a former star at a at a power five bcs school who thinks that special teams is beneath them um how many how many careers have been extended uh how many times have there has there been a team who's like offensive pick is struggling and they're like let's let's get him on special teams and let's get a, he can get some game reps reps that actually matter we can kind of calm him down kind of settle him down and ease him back into this thing nick chubb started and, on special teams absolutely uh, yeah so many um and and it was such an integral part um you know steve smith uh yeah. in carolina was a special teams ace who parlayed that into a bigger offensive role over time and um it was such an integral path to getting into the league. And uh, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the NFL has been basically killing off returns. And it's it's mixed for me because I know it's kickoff returns especially, it's one of the most dangerous plays in the sport. It's probably for the best if kickoff returns went away. I'm glad that Cordero Patterson, who is the best kickoff returner of all time, managed to get the all-time career kickoff return record before before returns died. Um, which is doubly impressive because, you know, he's returning 15, 20 kicks a year rather than 80 a year like they used to. Um, so I'm sad to see it go uh, because, I mean, I don't know what happens to those undrafted, very borderline players, guys who will play on eight teams in six years. Um, I don't really know what the path to the league looks like now for them. Um, but, you know, health and safety-wise, it's probably for the best. Uh, so that's, uh, I would, I feel like we're in the last gasp of the return era. Um, and part of me is sad to see it go. And part of me recognizes that, you know, it's time has come. Yeah. And it's, and it's sad because, I mean, they really are the truest football players in this, in this, from the standpoint of, you know, what the spirit of the game was. It was a collision game. And those guys 
who have that level of comfort doing that, I mean, definitely are, you know, they, they've been the glue for football teams. I mean, I think of a guy right now who has a real good shot of making it into the league as a wide receiver because of his special team skill, and that's Rakeem Jarrett, the, the former five-star LSU recruit who transferred to Maryland. And he was like kind of the second banana to Dante Demas Jr., who really didn't, I don't think he even got, if he got drafted, it was drafted on day three. Um, and Jarrett, watching Jarrett, one of the things that intrigued me was he did punt coverage. He could return punts, but he was he was their punt coverage guy who and, and was good at it. And so when he came to Tampa, I was like, that's a pretty good spot for him because even though it may not be for fantasy football, it's, you know, if Baker Mayfield doesn't play at the level that he's he has for brief periods of time, then, it, you know, he might have a shot to, to be in the slot or see some time in four receiver sets. And with Russell Gage, you know, out for the year, and Trey Palmer, I know, is considered probably the guy that people are interested in because he's a special teams return man du jour and you know, a big play guy who was also a former five-star LSU recruit who wound up at Nebraska. But Trey Palmer drops balls, you know, like, I mean, pretty pretty frequently, whereas Rakeem Jarrett is a different, is a little bit better in that regard. And I think of guys like that who, or Terrell Davis, who won big That's play. That's going to bring up. Right. Yeah. He, he basically only made the team because he just leveled a guy on punt coverage in a, in a preseason game in Japan. Yeah. So, and then now he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, exactly. And it was, and they were about to cut him. You know, so they were. Yeah. So that's a, you know, it's those moments that, it's those moments that people don't really see. It's like kind of the mailroom of the, uh, it's kind of the mailroom of the NFL's corporate ladder. If you had a corporate ladder in the NFL, but uh, um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, and, and times would change. Here's something in theory. Do you think you could overcome the history of what has been embedded in like your emotional being as a fan if football turned into some hybrid of flag football or low contact football? Would you still you would you still be a fan? Oh yeah, I I wouldn't have any issue with that. Uh, I think um the NFL has always been a lot more fluid than something like baseball, which I think is very hidebound and tradition bound. And the NFL has always been more of a tinkering and experimenting league um, that's willing to try stuff and is willing to evolve. Today's NFL is not the same as the NFL 30 years ago, which is not the same as the NFL 60 years ago, which is not the same and so on and so forth. Um, I honestly, I might even be more excited for it if it turned into some sort of flag football because I, I don't know if you've watched like high level flag football but it's a very exciting you know it's a much more i think fluid game uh, obviously a lot less contact and a lot yeah. less collision um but you're yeah. getting a lot more i think like interesting movement through the yeah. field um as you add that that extra target to avoid um like basketball soccer lacrosse all in one Right, right. But it still maintains all of those advantages I was talking about to football where you're you're calling the individual plays and you can set up, you know, plays and counter plays and um you you still maintain that narrative through line. So I think that would be a very exciting product to watch. I would I would absolutely watch that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, 
we're always going to continue to tinker here with some of the edges of things that people don't talk about on a regular basis that either will, hopefully will um, inspire your interest or just help you with your fantasy leagues down the line. And certainly we'll be getting into the meat of the NFL um, you know, beginning next week. So on behalf of Adam Harstead, you can find at Football Guys and on Twitter at Adam Harstead and at Matt Waldman. We're both two people that seem to still like Twitter. Um, so, you, you know, and... You know, we, we can leave out all the externals with it, just the app as it is. You know, I think we're both fans of it. And if you're fans of it, you know, head on over there. You'll get good discourse and, and content and conversation out of us um, when we're on it. And, you know, happy week one. Enjoy the opener tonight. And you can catch me at the Audible Live Football Guys. We're going to do a simulcast on Twitter. Um, I posted something on my site about, you know, kind of the changeover, but, um, It'll be Jeff Bell and myself co-hosting it. Um, we're going to keep it kind of the loose style that we always did um, with Cecil and Bloom and Gene. And, you know, I'm going to miss doing stuff with those guys. And, you know, but it's kind of an end of an era. They've got priorities. So we'll just say for now they're on a long assignment. Um, and um, I'm sure that we'll we'll get back together at some point to do some stuff. Um, but Jeff Jeff's awesome and we're gonna have a good time and we'll we'll bring we'll bring our own spin to it in a loose sort of fun way. So uh, see you guys tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and you can always tune into it tomorrow, um, the audible um, channel of the Football Guys podcast. See you guys later.